Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Richard Kreitner. His newest book is Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Its novel and fiery thesis is simple. The United States has never lived up to its name and never will. The disunionist impulse may have found its greatest expression in the Civil War, but as Break It Up shows, the seduction of secession wasn't limited to the South or the 19th century. It was there at our founding and has never gone away. With a scholar's command and a journalist's curiosity, Richard Kreitner takes readers on a revolutionary journey through American history, revealing the power and persistence of disunion movements in every area and region. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Richard Kreitner. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Oh, it's a pleasure. You have written a book called Break It Up. And this is not about, it's not a self-help book about relationships. It is actually, (laughs) or is it? Maybe it's a self-help book for the country, right? Uh, So you're basically, it's interesting. This book is about um, the state of our union and whether it should, um, the subtitle is Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. And you're kind of discussing this idea of secession. But you argue in the book that this is not something new. I mean, we kind of think that this is something that, you know, kind of manifested in in a kind of anomalous way in the Civil War. And every once in a blue moon kind of has a resurgence in places like Texas or something. But you argue this is just American, part of, is American an essential part of the American story, right? Like, I mean, Absolutely. you argue that this has been there since the beginning. I think it really is the, the American story. Um, the, the fight to create a union and then to hold it together against all these different forces and interests and ideas that, that have been pulling us apart. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I looked around and I just found that nobody had really told that story before they had in little bits and pieces in different eras, but nobody had told the story of four centuries of struggling to cor- to form a union to hold it together um, and and keep it from breaking apart. Yeah, and and this goes back. I mean, this goes back right um, even before the forming of the nation and the Declaration of Independence. Even uh, I mean, because you have this sort of. It's interesting, you know. I'm uh, a Philly kind of native, Philly area native. You spend some interesting time in in the book talking about William Penn mm-hmm. and and this struggle that he fought against because he actually thought I didn't know this. He actually was the first per, one of an early advocate of a European Union, like a, a yeah, European Parliament. Absolutely. Really, and the first, he was the first advocate of an, a European or American Union. He, he he's kind of the author of both, actually. And he really had had a hard time advocating for the ideas. I mean, it was not it was not incredibly well re- easily received, right? Um, to kind of have this union of colonies. No, well, he, he this was in the 1690s, which is like the first major war of that period between England and France had broken out after the glorious revolution in England. So, so the continent of Europe was totally torn apart and that was uh, creating problems in America. Um, you know, French and Indian raids on, on English colonists and vice versa. Um, and the, the English colonies, Penn thought were not being, uh, strong or united enough in, in, in forming militias together to, to fight off the enemy and whatnot. So he thought that if you were to pool their resources and and join their governments uh, in a formal way, you might be able to create a, a stronger defense against these these you know so-called enemies, um, and and it might have other benefits, uh, economic benefits for the, for the colonies. So he proposed this idea to the Board of Trade in London, which was the the group of the British government, the English government that was overseeing the colonies uh, at the time. And they kind of liked the idea, but they saw that it would never be accepted in America, that every colony would have some reason to oppose it. So they didn't even try to push it forward. And that was really the last attempt for another, you know, 50 or 60 years until Benjamin Franklin came along. Yeah. And weren't there, you also talk in the book that there were British attempts at kind of 
creating unions, right? That they thought that if they could unionize the colonies, it would be easier to govern them or manage them. Yeah, well, they kind of went back and forth on that, you know, over the course of a century and a half of, of colonial settlement, uh, settlement. Would it be easier and more profitable for the colonies to be joined together? Or would that be too dangerous? They might then seek independence and should Britain instead keep them apart? You know, the first, the first, uh, really, real attempt at forming a union in the, in the, what would become the United States was called the Dominion of New England. And that was a colony, uh, a union of about seven or eight colonies in the Northeast from New Jersey up to present day Maine, which is then part of Massachusetts. Uh, that was formed in the 1680s and all of the individual colonial charters were revoked. They essentially ceased to exist as separate colonies, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, and were joined under this one dominion. Uh, and they hated it. They rebelled against it. It was really the first American revolution. They wanted nothing to do with each other, and they saw this union as a threat to their liberty. Um, so they rebelled, and they overthrew the governor and, and forced him to flee back to England. And, um, and Britain kind of learned its lesson after that, that uh, the colonists would not be united um, and, and were probably best treated separately. So they, you know, pursued that strategy for 50 or 60 years before, you know, various events with the Seven Years' War forced them to reconsider once again. You know, as I read your book, I was thinking, we as Americans, I think, have this sense of national identity, uh, almost like, I mean, I, I, at least we have the mythology of it or something that the first thing is the Union, then the states. But it seems like what you're arguing is from the inception of our history, we were much more like Europe. It seems we're like, just as like, People in France don't think they're Italians, and people in Italians, people that are Italians don't think they're Austrians or whatever. You kind of, it seems, argue that people in Pennsylvania didn't think they were North Carolinians or people, you know, that they, they, that they, that these colonies seem to have much more of a sort of particular identity than the romantic story you learn in elementary school. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the romantic story that we all learn in elementary school has been specifically crafted to compensate for all of these um, differences and divisions. And, and, and this perpetual disunion that we've had, that we, we, we craft these stories as a replacement for uh, an actual organic sense of national unity. As for the similarity to Europe, I think that's absolutely right, with the, with the difference that there is this sense in, in the new world, so-called, of starting anew, that, that we could, yes, we, we were you know, quite different and might become an Austria and a France and a Germany, but that the settlements were still young enough that we could choose a different path. And that was union. You know, Europe still hasn't really done that. They've, you know, they're trying to now. Um, but, but the early Americans realized that that was the only way to prevent North Carolina and Pennsylvania, for instance, you know, from going to war. Um, not, not those two, but, you know, Virginia and Pennsylvania for sure. Um, in the way that Europeans always had was to form a, a union preemptively and not wait for, you know, a gruesome civil war to occur and then form form one afterwards. Um, but it's always been a struggle. You know, it's always been straining against this kind of insistent disunity and, and clashing of interests um, and ideologies. Uh, so that, that's another kind of dynamic that I that I like to play with is the idea of union as passed back and forth from America to Europe. You know, European disunion kind of gave the early Americans this idea of, hey, we can we can try a different way. And then when the Americans formed a union, Europeans have constantly looked at that, or at least a few, and said, we, you know, we should give that a shot as well. These days, they, they both seem to be quite beleaguered. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, so it's interesting. What Can you talk a little bit about the imagination it takes to form a union? Like it, it, because, you know, you talk about Ben Franklin and kind of in the book and his insistence that we need a union. But it, it seems like now, again, now, as we look back on the 18th century, and again, the stories we learn in elementary school and that sort of thing, we think, oh, of course, that's what you do. We have, you know, we have, they're all the colonists were together and they, we, we, we you know, fight the war. And we, we're going to start this great nation. But it was, a, it, it was a kind of great, it seems like from your work, it was, a, it was a crazy idea mm -hmm. to have this kind of centralized union or have any kind of, like, I mean, it was an uphill battle and swimming against the stream. And Ben Franklin is one of these people who kind of sees, he seems like a visionary, uh, uh, there sees advantages to this kind of social contract that most other people didn't seem to see. Yeah. Well, I think he was a visionary, but the funny thing is that in the 18th century, and I think into the 19th as well, that was a pejorative term. You know, if you were a visionary, you had your head in the clouds, you know, you were, you um you were seeing things that weren't there that you know that was that was a negative term and people saw his idea of union negatively they thought that he was trying to take away their liberties that's that's you know we all we all learn about this join or die cartoon and and a little bit maybe 
about the 1754 Albany Congress, at which he, he proposed the plan of union, the first real one since William Penn in the 1690s. Um, but, and that's supposed to be this kind of harbinger of the union that we eventually formed in the revolution and, and sealed with the constitution. But it was widely panned and, and utterly rejected by every single colony. And Franklin was deemed an enemy of the, of the people and their liberties, you know, um, it was a very unpopular idea. Where did he get it? You know, that's that's kind of um, another question that we we really don't talk about too much. It's it's really, I think we we all have the sense that the American you know founding fathers in, more or less invented you, um, and they definitely did not. They had models for this, and two of them. Um, one one I only one I really discuss in the book. Um, the first was the United Provinces of the Netherlands, which was the Dutch Confederation that was founded after uh, the Dutch declared independence from Spain in the 16th century. And that, of course, is where many of the um, pilgrims uh, spent about 20, 10, 10 years or so after fleeing England. They, they lived in the Netherlands, which had this religious tolerance policy and, and this political union that they that they um, possibly were inspired by. Uh, and then secondarily, the, the Native Americans that were obviously already here, their form of government in most places was confederation, a confederation of several nations, especially the Iroquois, who I talked about in the book, um, where each tribe was more or less sovereign, and they just pulled their resources for defense or or, or other things. Um, and I I suggest in the book, there's no conclusive proof of this, um, but I think there's pretty good circumstantial evidence that that's where Franklin got the idea for union from, from the Iroquois, who he was uh, involved with through Pennsylvania's uh, diplomacy and printing various legal documents. Uh, I think he was inspired by the Iroquois to form. Yeah, I mean, that that's interesting around the the sort of novel or not novel nature of it but again it's swimming against the stream and i'm wondering um the whole confederation idea like I, what's interesting to me is I, I think you think of the existence of the country after we won independence and before the constitution where we had the articles of confederation what was life like then i mean in in the country because i think we don't kind of again this is sort of our 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 gaps in primary and secondary education, you don't really learn much about the Confederation and how we existed before there was a constitution. What was that like? Well, it was really utterly chaotic because, you know, um, they started drawing it up right around the time of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It took like four or five years to finally get it ratified. And that was because there was a war going on, but also because the colonies were really uncertain, not not whether they wanted to join together at all, but on what terms they would do so. There were really none on which they could all agree. So though it was drafted in 1776, it wasn't ratified until 1780, 1781. Um, and there's a whole story about that, uh, where, where the, the final holdout state, Maryland, kind of only ratified because they were blackmailed by the French into doing so in exchange for military assistance, which, which Maryland badly needed. Um, and that was the only way in which the Articles of Confederation were actually ratified was through blackmail by a foreign power. So that brings you to the end of the war. And then after the war, the country almost immediately falls apart. And that's partly due to the flaws in the Articles of Confederation, but it's also partly to do with, with just weaknesses in the American nation and especially the economy. Um, so there was, there was, it was really not a very peaceful time. Um, and it, it essentially was more of an international coalition that had been formed than a real nation. And, and it was spoken of in those terms. You know, each state, as in the Senate today, notably, uh, had the same number of votes in Congress. They each had one vote. Um, and, and that's it. So, so Virginia, though Virginia had far more people than say Delaware, they each had equal say. And each, any amendment to the Articles of Confederation required unanimous support. You know, today it's, it's two thirds, three fourths, depending on which way you go about it. But then it was, it was 100%. You need to get every single state on board. So the country was effectively ungovernable because the Articles of Confederation didn't give Congress any taxing power. It, it was really quite, quite feckless. Um, so the country was falling apart during the, during the Confederation, um, for several different reasons and for some more than others. Um, and eventually, you know, there was Shays Rebellion in 1786. So it was, it was a very chaotic time. And this is kind of a sub theme of the book. Uh, but I think one very similar to our own, where you have this very static, almost unamendable constitution, um, though the barriers to revising it now are lower, they're, they're almost insuperable. We haven't passed a new amendment in, in many decades. Um, you have this, this constitution, which is totally incapable of allowing the country to address a very long list of extremely pressing problems. And what the founders thought in 1786, 87, was that if they didn't revise the constitution, 
the Articles of Confederation, um, the country would probably fall apart. There would either be a second revolution, kind of a populist economic revolt uh, that would certainly target them because they, they were all very wealthy, uh, or a, a civil war where the states were, were actually fighting each other and even soliciting help from from foreign powers like Britain, France, Spain. Um, and, and the only alternative was to drop a new constitution. I kind of think that's where we're at today. It's remarkable that the founders were able to turn, I mean, by 18th century standards, that seems like turning on a dime to me. You know, th- that within a couple of years, they were able to actually have a new constitutional convention. I mean, that, that I mean, the thing, it seemed like it was fragile, but also it seemed like there was a flexibility there that we don't have today. Well, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. Um, I mean, I think we, we do need a new constitution, but the reason why it was able to be done so quickly is because it was effectively a coup d'etat. You know, it was, it was a totally illegitimate and extra legal, um, way to get around the constitutional paralysis. You know, the, the constitutional, it, it's as if the Koch brothers today, and they kind of want to do this, but they're, they're going through the official channels. But it's as if the Koch brothers summoned a convention in Philadelphia of, of 50 of the wealthiest people around the country. And on their own say-so, their own authority, they drew up a new constitution for the country. And yes, then they're going to submit it to the states for ratification once, one time only. You know, a, a, a campaign and a struggle that was just filled with fraud and violence and all kinds of deceit and lies, and then submit it to the country. And that's the constitution that's going to govern the country for the next two and a half century. You know, when so you're if, if you're willing to do book, that... When you're researching this book, are you just sitting there thinking, everything I learned in school was bullshit? Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And not only everything I learned in school, but everything that our politicians repeat today, everything that most of our, you know, pundits and commentators and even like, you know, the, the big glossy name historians. Um, yeah, I kind of, I kind of think it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just not the real story. I kind of, I kind of, uh, at the beginning of the process, kind of, it slowly dawned on me that there was this whole other story, which was true and, and amply documented in, in the, in the primary sources and even in lots of secondary sources. It's just, it hadn't been stitched together, you know, of, of this, this fundamental fragility to the union that had never really gone away or been adequately addressed. You know, there's a lot, I just saw another person, um, yesterday talking about a contested election in November, January, you know, and, and what might happen. And the person raised the idea of secession or Cal- you know, California seceding if Trump like uses violence to try to hold on to power. And then he just kind of dismisses it in this parenthetical aside that said, well, we fought a war over that, right? And it's like, well, I'm not, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if that's an adequate, I'm not sure that adequately, uh, answers the problem or, or like lots of people are going to find that a convincing argument. So even now we have, um, these conferences sponsored by Vladimir Putin, where there are representatives from California and Texas who really want to secede. But I mean, this is, I think most Americans look at this as so wacky, but your book seems to argue that this is more the norm. Absolutely. I think it's kind of a return of the norm, or, or as I put in the book, the return of the repressed. This idea of secession was kind of repressed after the Civil War and has been Ever since, you know, we are the United States. It's, it's not questionable, but I think that we never actually really addressed that question conclusively. And I'm, I'm not really that surprised that, that when things are getting kind of, kind of wacky domestically, that there's lots of people in different parts of the country. And I think very importantly from different political persuasions who are saying, well, let's just jump ship entirely. As for the, the Russian, um, influence or, uh, involvement, that also kind of has a very long history of foreign rivals, as I said before, um, in the 1780s, getting involved in America's political divisions and and subsidizing or supporting separatist movements in the United States. That was something that was largely there at the very beginning of our country when we were very weak and divided and, and hadn't yet become, obviously, a world power. But like now that we're kind of on the, the, the other side of, of that curve and, and we're kind of in decline as, as, as an empire, I suggest, um, we're seeing that happen again. And I think we're probably going to see more of it. The, the Russian support for, se- for secessionists in the United States in 2016, as we know, was part of their much broader campaign of just sowing um, dysfunction and, and, and dissension in the United States. And I think we'll probably only see more of that. You mentioned in your book how Washington kind of headed off a kind of secessionist movement at, at the past. I mean, he kind of, you know, put a stop to it and, and again, was a figure for unionization. Why was Washington on the same page as Franklin? I mean, what was it about him that it bucked the secessionist kind of move, which was the mainstream view? Are you, are you talking about uh, like the Whiskey Rebellion after the Constitution or, or the 1780s? Washington? 
Yeah, I was thinking um, you tell the story where he come he kind of comes in. Um, I guess it, I, mean, I mean I guess it's the Whiskey Rebellion where he kind of comes in, and it was pre Constitution. Like it was. Uh, I think you talking about the Newberg conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the, you know, I'm telling the story in the book about secessionist movements, but I'm also talking about these moments of potential constitutional breakdown that may not have taken the form of secessionism. And that's one in 1782 at the very end of the Revolutionary War, the fighting had stopped, but the peace treaty hadn't arrived. And all these soldiers and officers in the Continental Army's encampment were waiting for their pay that they'd been promised. But the Congress was completely broke. So they decide, hey, well, we've got all the guns you know, and the swords. Let's use them. Let's go to Philadelphia and, and intimidate Congress to give us our, our money. Um so that's kind of the movement that that he put a kibosh on. And Hamilton was actually, it's, you know, flirting with getting involved with them and tried to get Washington on board. And Washington said, no, we cannot use the army for this purpose. Um, he then kind of did use the army for that purpose because he, he squashed the rebellion in the army encampment and then told Congress, you know, these guys are pretty mad. You might, you might think about giving them what they want. And then Congress did uh, give them half of what they wanted in terms of uh, pay and pensions. Um, so that wasn't a, a secessionist movement, but it was certainly a, a, a movement that would have broken down uh, Republican government in one way or another and probably led to either a military dictatorship or some kind of civil war or both. Um, but as for why Washington himself supported Union, I think he really had economic motives uh, towards Union. He had these vast Western land holdings, which would only be secure if, if the country stayed together. And, and he, he represented this, this wealthy class that depended on interstate trade and, and building up a national economy. So that's why he got involved in um, clearing out uh, riverways and canalizing the Potomac River so that you could have easier trade. He wanted to build a canal between the Atlantic watershed and the Mississippi watershed over the Allegheny Mountains so that you would have closer connection between the East and the West, which he thought otherwise might might break the union along along the Appalachian Ridge. Um, so I think that Washington's motives were were largely economic uh, towards union, as were as were, were many people's. You know, the question of of what has held us together um, is is one that I'm sort of chasing throughout the book, and there's lots of different reasons. But for a lot of people, it's been economic self interest that that a, a unified um, country or continent um, makes more economic sense and, and will lead to larger profits. Do you think that's still true? I mean, is that what keeps us together? Money. I personally don't think that's the case. You know, we, we have, we already have NAFTA, you know, where we're essentially in, in some kind of economic union with, with Canada and Mexico. And the way, the way that trade barriers have broken down, that may be changing now, but, um, over the last several decades, I don't think that you really need to be in a, in a single nation in order to reap the benefits of, of economic, you know, cooperation. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't really know exactly what the, the answer is as to why we've hung together. I think it's been several different things at different times. Sometimes it's been chance, you know, just the way that things played out. That that's what happened at the war after uh, the War of 1812. The war was going abysmally for the United States. New Englanders wanted to leave the Union. Actually, met in a convention to consider that possibility. They issued a list of ultimatums, constitutional amendments that they said if they did not pass you know, will probably secede from the union. And, and the war was going horribly at that point, so it seems likely to happen. But the last moment, Andrew Jackson wins the Battle of New Orleans. Britain sees reason to form, you know, to offer generous peace terms in negotiations in Europe, and the war ends. It's an absolute miracle. Everybody says so at the time, without which, you know, the union might have, might, I think, very well have fallen apart. So there's, a, there's an example of, you know, mere chance. Um, you know, how much came down to Pickett's charge at Gettysburg <laughs> as far as, you know, saving the Union goes. Um, that's military might. I think a lot of it has been fear, though, fear of the consequences of breaking apart. Um, you know, which we, if we analogize the, the Union to a, a marriage, as we often do, um, is, is kind of a pretty weak, you know, reason to stay together, just mere fear of falling apart. Do you think had we not fought the war for independence, we would have just kind of formed like Canada? I mean, this is the interesting question in my mind. Like what would the United States would clearly be, a, I mean, evolved into some kind of commonwealth or something, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like, had we not fought the war, what do you think would have happened? I, I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. There's actually a book about this, which I have not read. I, I thought at one point that a study, you know, this is a historical study, obviously, but I thought maybe a study of the way disunion um, has appeared in fiction might be part of this project. And I think now it's, it might have to be a different project. But there's a book called um, For Want of a Nail, which imagines that the United States fought the War of Independence and lost it. And what happens? And it sort of teases out. It's like a, a fake history book complete with fake footnotes and everything. 
teasing out an entire scenario as to what would have happened over the next two centuries. I kind of am of the belief that independence was kind of inevitable one way or another. You had this really, really brash, um, populist uh, set of colonies, an entire ocean away, reared on on philosophies of liberty. Um, and I think separation is another thing that I talk about in the book, that, that from the very beginning, from the pilgrims, who were known in their time as separatists, the idea of seceding um, from an established community as a response to political tensions and problems was is, is almost the national tradition. So I kind of think that that it was inevitable one way or another. Um, and the way it, the way it happened is just is just the way it happened. But if it hadn't, it probably would have happened another way. By the same token, I, I find the Civil War inevitable, not necessarily the way it went down. But I think that it seems pretty clear that the country had to go through a massive reckoning like that in order to, you know, get rid of slavery. Yeah. And I, I find it, it, it's an interesting question, right? Like we, so you mentioned earlier that people opposed um, unionization in various forms because of a threat to liberty. Um, and it, I mean, at, at that time, why did the centralized government, like what was it about a centralized authority that was a threat to liberty? Because I mean, I think as an American, Today, if I think of threats to liberty, it's generally not the federal government. It's like Monsanto, right? Like mm-hmm. somebody that's like, you know, winning legislation that stops me from knowing if there's genetically modified food and it, it, genetically modified vegetables and what I'm eating, right? Like mm-hmm. what was it in the 18th century that was that that made Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or Virginia think we're better off if we're not unionized? Yeah. I mean, Portland hasn't hasn't changed that for you as far as the, the threat to you know the federal government poses to your own personal liberty. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, okay. All right, <laughs> Portland is. All right. All right, all right let's I say. we're getting back there. You know, I think yeah, I think you, were, you that was right for a while, but I don't know. I, I don't. I, I kind of feel like the federal and not only liberty but life itself. I kind of feel like the federal government's current absolute dysfunction and, and worse is, is actually a threat to my personal liberty and even life. And certainly pursuit of happiness. <laughs> um, but, but that, but that though, right, is the federal government's failure is not being strong enough. Like it, it, on some level on, on the pandemic, it's that we can't organize in a way that's meaningful. Absolutely. I would prefer a strong, efficient federal government that was preserving all of those, those rights of mine. Um, I, I kind of feel like because of the constitution, there are structures in place that, that make that more or less impossible, you know, uh, at least in, in this country at this time. Um, but as for the 18th century, um, I guess standing armies, they, they were very scared of standing armies and they thought that the smaller a government was, the, the less of a, a menace it might be to their, to their safety. That was the reigning thinking of the time. You know, Montesquieu wrote in the spirit of the laws that the, that a republic could only be possible within a small area. That was the tradition handed down from the ancient uh, Romans and, and from, um, Europe in, in, in the, you know, the early Renaissance period in, in Italy, the Italian city states that a republic could only be in a very small territory. And it was James Madison later, you know, after the revolution, who comes along and says, well, maybe that's not the case. Maybe you can make a Republican form continental. Um, but for them, they, they, they assumed that a small size was, uh, in a Republic was the only way to preserve their liberties. I, I, I don't necessarily think that's true, as you say. Um, but I think there's also major weaknesses in, in trying to govern such a large country democratically. And, and we're finding that, you know, America seems to me to be almost ungovernable. Right. And it's interesting when you look at the world, right? Like any country that's this big as the, as the United States is and this diverse, they're either a autocracy or a struggling democracy. So you get Russia, you could say, right? Like is an autocracy. China is an autocracy. India is not a functional democracy. You can maybe look to Brazil or something like that. Like, we're the I mean we're the only kind of country on our scale right that's that is trying experiment. right that is trying to have a, a democratic a liberal democratic state right that's and that's that's the great experiment that's what I mean by union is the great is the story of American history can we do it you know it's always been a question <laughs> it's a major question right now um, and I think there's there's profound doubts um, that we can you know and, and and certainly with the two and a half century old constitution that I think um, was created for a very very different time uh, and I think that if we are going to make it if we are going to try to keep the experiment going I think we're gonna have to take a hard look at 
at the Constitution. But as you said before, I mean, the the odds of getting an amendment, pa- even one amendment passed, mm-hmm. let alone having a constitutional convention is so, I mean, we can't get anything passed. Like, I mean, you can't, I mean, things like background checks for handguns, which I don't know, 60 some percent or 70, like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how much of, of the populace supports any given issue we're at a place where basically we can't, you know, we, we can't get a consensus on anything. So how right. would we fix the architecture that holds the thing together? Absolutely. A great question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that a constitutional convention, um, and, and more, more, more broadly, a constitutional conversation around the country is, is possibly the only thing that can do it. I, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think it can, uh, hold us together. And I think as a lot of people have said, it very well might, might cause further, uh, friction and fracture, but I think it's kind of a last ditch attempt to make the thing work. You know, are we still capable of self-government or not? So I'm asking you, okay, Richard, uh, you, you are Richard Kreitner. You are the kind of, um, constitutional czar. Like we, we make you czar for a day <laughs> yeah, and right. you get wow. to, you get, you get to architect. You could be the architect of a new mechanism to keep us together. What would it look like? I mean, I, I, or, or, or would you break us up? No, I wouldn't break us up. I wouldn't break us up. If it, but it depends whether I also have control over everybody's responses to my innovations, because I think that everything that I think could hold us together, or at least um, do so in, in a democratic way, I think would be as opposed as everything else is. You know, by the other side. For what? You know, what would I do? I would abolish the Senate of the United States. Which I think is, is a, a terrible leftover of these colonial era divisions that we were talking about. You know, what is, I, I always uh, pick on this state, but I think it's a good example. What is Delaware? You know, like that, that Delaware gets the same number of votes as California or Wyoming, which is even less populated. And what's funny is the senators in Delaware represent technically less people than the congressperson does. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's true in several states. Um, so I just, I just think that though that's a, that's an enshrining of these very arbitrary 17th century royal decrees in our 21st century constitution, which makes absolutely no sense and totally, um, distorts our politics and prevents us from do, from getting anything done, including measures regarding climate change that, you know, I think human civilization depends on. So I would abolish the Senate. I would probably just make a parliamentary system. You know, I'd abolish the presidency as well. And, um, you know, I, I, any t- we, we could have gotten rid of this guy long ago. <laughs> just have a vote of no confidence. Nobody's confidence in him. You know, and it's, it's, and then you don't have to wait another four years. It's, it's just a far saner system to, to have the president come from the legislature, I think, than to be independent, you know, um, as this kind of imperial presidency. Um, so those are the main ones and I would see how those worked out, but I, 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 you know, I don't really think that, that it's going to be possible to do those things. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. We might have to, we might have to come up with new compromises, you know, give and take as the podcast has it. <laughs> you know? yeah, but, but, I mean, what evidence, I mean, okay. So what do you think if, if you're looking at the world right now and you're looking at parliamentary systems, what are the ones that you think are, are high functioning? I think Canada. I went to university in Montreal. I think Canada is a pretty well-functioning country, certainly much smaller than ours. But um, yeah, I think the Canadian system works very well. Um, I think the British system works very well also, though, though they're also having you know constitutional questions about the role of the Supreme Court and whether there should be a fixed-term Parliaments Act. Um, but I think they're, they're largely, you know, doing pretty well. So California... Um, recently, I mean, Gavin Newsom said, like, we're a nation state, basically, which, I mean, some people on the right pushed at that, but I mean, they are the fifth, if, if they were a country, they'd be what, like the fifth largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think California could secede and be functional? I think so. I absolutely think so, especially if they were attached to Oregon and Washington, perhaps also to British Columbia and other states west of the Rockies. You know, the, this is, this, this I relate, um, extensively in the book, the very early history of this idea of California separatism and and the idea of a west coast pacific republic is an idea that that goes back to jefferson who supported it daniel webster supported it yeah um, you talk about in the book how jefferson was like look if they're americans with american values it'll be fine yeah exactly well that we're, actually like we're, we're not going to go to war with them or something yeah that's the original meaning of manifest destiny also the, the editorial that coined the phrase manifest destiny was not saying that the united states needed to expand across the continent simply that you know i mean it was it was racist drivel but you know white anglo-saxon americans needed to 
extend across the continent and, and dominate. But but the, that editorial was perfectly open to the idea of multiple republics on the American continent. Um, so yeah, I think they I think that a West Coast republic makes an awful lot of sense and is one of the the, the prime possibilities for the next several decades. Uh, it, it's a very long history. Um, they'd be you know they would be very close to Asia, of course, and and have a totally different um, orientation than than the rest of the country. Um, there's there's been lots of stirrings uh, over the last twenty years in California, in Oregon, in Washington, the Cascadia movement. So I think I you know I guess I guess I could see California independent, but I think more so if it was attached to several other neighboring states on the West Coast. The Gavin Newsom thing is very interesting. I mean, yes, it could be a nation state. It's it's not a nation state, but the the use of that language is what strikes me as very interesting and what suggests to me that there's something going on regarding the potential disintegration of the union that people want to be talking in these terms. If you look at what people were saying in California after the 2016 election, the state legislative leaders were saying that they woke up feeling like strangers in a foreign land. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> so you're a dad, you have a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think your kids will grow up in or will exist in for their adult lives, a United States of America? Or do you think they'll, they'll exist in something that's recognizably different? Mm-hmm. So they were born in 2018 and 2020. So they, they could well see the end of the century. Honestly, whether they, whether the United States of America ex- exists in its present form, anything like its present form in 2100 is absolutely the least of my concerns. I was just reading a new Bill McKibben essay, you know, on, on global warming and climate change and what happens at two degrees and three degrees and four degrees and five degrees. If that's what's going to happen, I don't see the United States existing in its current form through all of that. I I absolutely don't. And, and I really think that we're going to have bigger problems actually. Um, so that's terrifying enough, you know, regard, uh, apart from the potential dissolution of the nation. Um, but I think our chances are, you know, to 2050, I'd, I'd put them at 50-50. Trump wins lower. I think I think it could be a very rocky decade if, if that's the case, if he tries to hold on to office, even though he seems to have lost a legitimate election, even more so. But yeah, I think I think our chances are, are really not great. As, as we're talking, you and I are trying to come up with what could possibly hold this together. And I, <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. I, I don't think anybody knows, you know, and any idea, my idea, abolish the Senate, abolish the presidency. It's wishful thinking because the other side's not going to automatically just agree to that and, and be happy, <laughs> you know. Um, so I don't know. But, I, I, you know, I think that if we try to hold it together past its expiration date, I think that's where things get messier and dicier than if we preemptively just try to decide for ourselves, do we do we want it to? Do we really need it to? Does it make sense anymore? You know, I think that if, if you if you perhaps initiate the process of talking about a national divorce and what would that look like and what would we give up and what would we gain beforehand, before all the violence, um, you know, you might be better off. It's interesting. Francis Fukuyama, the, the great you know political theorist, said in an interview like he gave like two years ago on NPR or something, he was saying, what's interesting about the United States right now is that we have unprecedented um, ability to, to individuate. Like I could be a Latina, trans this 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 and that american like you could you could have several modifiers before america comes in to the equation and he said at the same time there's a corresponding lack of things that let us say this is america like we're, we we all believe in this mm-hmm. you know we yeah. all can sign on to this yeah i mean is that part of it too like that we're we're just like becoming so particular and, and, and so individuated, which, and again, Fukuyama wasn't critiquing that. Like he was just saying it's a reality, but at the same time, there's fewer and fewer things which we can say, well, that's what it means to be American. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is that just the recipe for disaster? Like, I mean, I'm not obsessed with, 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 you know, so-called identity politics, but I, I don't think that's the problem of what's going on in this country. I think that's a recognition of a diversity that was always there, but was just suppressed beneath the surface and and back when I don't really think there was ever a time where this was actually the case, but where there was something holding us together or where we thought that the concept of American had a defined and uncontroversial content. Although that, that what that was, was white men, you know, wealthy white men and their interests and their ideas and and their identity. Um, So I don't think something has been lost. I think something has been found. And the only question is, is that thing, which is irreducible multiplicity, uh, multiculturalism, you know, intersectionality, is that um, compatible with a union of 50 states, you know, across a very large, very large continent with, with lots of different interests? Um, 
that's what we have to see. I, 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 I don't know. Um, but I, 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 I wouldn't blame that. I don't think that's to blame. I think that that's actually a healthy um, unearthing of, of something that has always been there. Um, what else? I thought I was going to say something else about Fukuyama, but I forget. So why would you hold this together? I mean, the motivation for, you know, you have the process by which you do it, which you're, you know, you think is dubious that it could be successful. But why would you hold this together? Like, what what is it about the American experiment that you would you think is worth fighting to preserve? Two things. One, I think union is a is a beautiful and and wonderful idea. You know, the idea of joining lots of people together, breaking down boundaries. We're all in this together. Um, I think it's a great idea. And, and if it was up to me, I would I would you know go global with that with that idea. Um, so I think just in a, in a, in an abstract sense, uh, it would be an unfortunate, um, ideal to give up on. In a more concrete sense, that's an easy one. Climate change. You know, I think that a, a united America could do a lot more to combat and reverse, uh, and mitigate climate change than a fractured one. I think there may be, and I only hint at this in the book because I'm really not so sure about it. But there may be arguments for breaking up the, the country that, that, that take climate change seriously, you know, perhaps part of the country, the West Coast, the East, could get some things done, working with the rest of the world, sideline the parts that don't want to do anything and, and, and hopefully do more than we're doing now, which is absolutely zero or, you know, negative, uh, negative help to the rest of the world. But I think obviously the United States, um, is the, the strongest country in the world right now. And, and if we had continued down the path that we had started, uh, in Paris in 2015, that would be a reason for staying together. You know, on the other hand, if, 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 if that seems not to be in the cards, then I think we need to reassess and see what parts of the country could do. That's what California did after 2016. We're going to stay with the Paris climate accords. We're going to ratchet up our emission standards further. And what happens? The federal government sues them. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. What happened to states' rights, I guess, would be one question. But another is, what are the costs of union? You know, we, we talk a lot about the cost of disunion, I think. Um, but what are the costs of staying together? Is, is that preventing parts of the country from taking action against climate change and lots of other issues um, that they might otherwise be able to take? I don't know. Yeah, and you see this in, in um, the pandemic, right? Like certain states, like, like Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, just said, look, we're not going to wait for the federal government to do testing stuff. and had a you know had a collaboration with Democrat and Republican Republican governors to be like, hey, we're going to invest in testing because we need to figure out testing. I mean, so maybe but he was. I mean, he was not only playing offense; he was also playing defense. Remember, he was one of the governors who got shipments of personal protective equipment and then used the state's national guard to hide the supplies from the federal government to prevent them from being confiscated. I mean, that's this this has been an incredible year, but that's pretty astonishing stuff. Um, to you know, to see a state governor using the armed forces of the state to protect his, his state from the federal troops. Um, the, the interesting development to me with, with, the, with the coronavirus was in April when three different groups of governors around the country formed these regional federations to coordinate their efforts, both to um, uh, collect supplies and also to, to strategize about their economic lockdowns, when to enforce them, when to lift them. And that, to me, could be, I don't know, the beginning of the end, but the beginning of something new, some, some new kind of uh, federalism that is not about either the states or the federal government, but, but entities kind of in between them that take power, perhaps, from both the states and the feds. Um, and, and you'd have, you know, eight to 12 of these regional formations that, that work together. And maybe that's the way forward. Well, you're a writer and you could write about anything, right? You're an accomplished writer. Why this? I mean, why, why this book? I mean, what was it that, that said like you probably have given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours to this thing, to this artifact, this book, why this book? Yeah. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate, uh, accomplished. <laughs> I feel like this is kind of my, my first accomplishment. Um, I've been working on this for, you know, five or six years. Like I had the idea when I was 24. So I was, I was very young and I've, you know, become a writer through the writing of this book. Um, but it felt like an idea that kind of gathered everything that had ever gone into my intellectual makeup and all my curiosities. You know, my parents, um, raised me traveling around the country quite extensively. I've been to 49 states. I traveled a lot when I was in college and went on a four month road trip with my girlfriend, now wife, uh, right after graduating college. For, um, I think it was like 35 states or something. Um, so I've always been very interested in the size of the country, 
the diversity. Um, I didn't study history in college, but I got really interested in history afterwards. I was interning at The Nation magazine, where I'm now a contributing writer. And then I became the archivist for the magazine. And I was, so I was responsible for going through all the back issues. And The Nation was founded by abolitionists after the Civil War, who were trying to sort of continue the fight for, for liberation, even after slavery's end. Um, and I co-edited this issue for its 150th anniversary in 2015. So I was reading a lot about American history. I started with the Civil War, and then I kind of went backwards to the Revolution. And I noticed these themes of fracture and dissolution in both eras that nobody had really, or very few people had really connected. You know, the, these eras were kind of treated as distinct. And I, I kind of want to tell a story about um, that would take in all of that, all of American history and really all of American geography as well. Um, so, yeah, once I had the idea, it, it absolutely did not let go of me. Um, and I pursued it for about almost two years. Bef- yeah, two years before I um, even, you know, start talking to publishers. Um, and where was college, by the way? Uh, McGill, McGill University in Montreal. Okay, studied philosophy. So you're a philosopher with a steady job, which is great. You know, <laughs> I, I don't have a steady job. <laughs> I just have a book. <laughs> Ask my wife if it's a steady job. <laughs> but I'm wondering when you guys were traveling across the country, right? Like 35 states. You're a guy that's you've picked a team. I mean, you've worked with the nation. You're a man of the left. Did you find yourself empathizing with people in red state? I mean, what were did you have inter- meaningful interactions with people? Oh yeah, <laughs> that were that were in kind of red state rural America where there were the kind of Trumpite type people. I mean, yeah, well, this, this, is, this is 2012. So it's kind of like pre-Trump. It's yeah. a, it almost feels like a different, a different century or something. Um, but we, we certainly did start to notice um, the kind of fractures and, and storylines that people really only started talking about the 2016 election. You know, the division of the country into city, you know, cities and, and, and rural areas, you know, came as absolutely no surprise. Um, that's what it felt like. It felt like two different countries. But um, I certainly don't have contempt for, you know, the other side or something. I don't consider myself some kind of partisan warrior. Um, I, 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 you know, I had very meaningful encounters with, with all different kinds of people I ever can remember. And, you know, Alabama motel proprietors. And we, we did a lot of couch surfing. So we, you know, just stay with uh, strangers, um, interact with people. How does that work? Like, how do you find in 2012, how do you find strangers to stay with? Well, there was this website, Couchsurfing. I'm, I'm not sure if it's still around. Um We've got two kids, so we don't travel too much. But it's a it's a website where you just connect with people who offer to host. Um, and it's kind of you know it's supposed to be kind of a win win situation where you, of course, are getting free lodging, and they have this kind of sense of travel, even though they're not leaving their own homes. You know, you're if you're having people constantly come through your house from all around the world, and you have you know late night chats over beers with them, you're 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 opening yourself up to the world in a way that's not not usually possible. This is like socialist Airbnb. Sort of, yeah. It's it's it was it was strange. There's you know we we eventually came to the realization that it wasn't free. That um you did have to pay in kind of a social currency. Um you know we'd be getting off the road and we would just want to chill, but they they want to sort of um show you show off their lives to you and have you kind of praise that. And that was the currency. That was the payment. Um so we kind of tired of that and just <laughs> ended up camping mostly. Um, which had its own drawbacks, but in any case, you know, back to the, the, the overall, you know, question. Um, yeah, we had fascinating encounters with all different kinds of people around the country, uh, which, you know, further convinced me of our common humanity, but not, not of our common nationality, the opposite. That's an interesting thing, common humanity versus common nationality. And so like what you're saying is if we're going to move forward with a union, we get a bank on humanity, not nationality, like nationality divides and humanity unites. Maybe, maybe, but I mean, I think we need to go with common humanity regardless, you know, in, if, if we were to sort of consciously uncouple or preemptively break apart, the idea to me would not be to each go home to our separate pure silos and never talk to people of differing opinions. You know, I mean, I have people here in Brooklyn, uh, in my family who have, you know, radically different political opinions from me. I'm not about to ask them to ask them to move to, you know, Alabama. Um, so the idea of, of breaking apart or, or breaking down into those regional formations I mentioned with, with COVID in the spring, uh, would not be to separate everybody of different identities or ideas. The idea I think would be to bring government and politics down to a more local level where we might be able to have more productive conversations and perhaps effect, you know, uh, a more effective policy-making apparatus 
than we do by arguing over everything in one city in Washington. You know, so I wouldn't be happy with everything that was decided in the new Northeastern Republic either. And certainly my right wing cousins here in Brooklyn definitely wouldn't be happy. Um, but I think it, it might be more uh, representative of, 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 of what we want than, than the way things are right now, where everything that one president does is immediately undone by his, by his successor. So it's interesting because you're somebody who is located on the left, but you're kind of making argument that conservatives usually make that actually maybe if we scaled it down a little bit, mm-hmm. we could be more functional and productive. Yeah, that's, that's correct. <laughs> which, which I think, honestly, I think I'm not, I'm not, that's not my innovation. I think a lot of people, especially in the Trump era, have rediscovered, you know, quite um, usefully, uh, fortuitously, the, the importance of states' rights and of federalism on the left. The problem is that as soon as Biden is elected, you know, inshallah, God willing, um, we're going to forget about it immediately. <laughs> and, and, and every time Utah wants to nullify, you know, one of his laws on climate change or something, we're going to um, act like that's, you know, insurrectionary or something, because every time we're in and out of power, we change our opinions on these things. And so do the Republicans. And that, um, that sense, you know, when the book came out of this like late 2014 moment of the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests, uh, Obama, you know, hadn't, hadn't been able to do anything in several years and, and didn't do anything for the rest of his term, really, except through these executive orders. But I was old enough to remember, you know, when Bush was passing executive orders that we were against that, <laughs> you know, and we're against it now. Uh, certainly the ones that he, that Trump has done in the last couple of days. Um, and that's just not a stable way to run a country, you know, um, of, of opposing something just because you're out of power and, and favoring it because your party is in power. And through the, through the history, I found that that's always been the story. You know, the idea of disunion was passed back and forth depending on whether you were in power. So if you're a federalist in the 1790s, you're for a strong central government and a strong union. You're definitely against anybody who's going to question that. Or propose secession as, as Jefferson and, and Madison did in their, you know, Kentucky and Virginia resolutions in 1798. But as soon as Jefferson wins the presidency in 1800, they switch. Now the New England Federalists are for secession and states' rights and Jefferson and Madison are for a strong federal government as if, as if it hadn't happened, you know, as if, as if none of it really meant anything. And it kind of didn't because it's always all about material interests and not about, um, ideas or philosophies. Uh, it's kind of my realization. I just want to stop you there because you can easily edit and I need to go get a power cord for the laptop. Oh, no, no problem. I'll be right back. I'm ready when you are, Scott. We'll change a venue. A baby woke up. <laughs> oh, no problem. <laughs> so this is the interesting thing when you talk about Jefferson and Madison having secessionists, being part of secessionist movements. Why don't we tell that story in schools? Like, I mean, th- this is an interesting thing because these are the founders who 12 years after they've undertaken the grand experiment are saying, okay, let's get out. Yeah. Well, t- and Jefferson, I get a little more than Madison. But but- really, if I wanted to say it is Jefferson more than Madison. Uh, when Jefferson wanted to publish a follow-up to the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, which had a, a much stronger threat of secession in it, Madison actually traveled to Monticello and encouraged him to drop it. Um, so yeah, more, more Jefferson than Madison. But Madison himself, you know, though he didn't go so far as secession, he definitely flip-flopped, as we would say, on whether the, the government should be, you know, strong centralized or, um, or or more fragmented and, and decentralized. Uh, he went back and forth several times through his life. But why don't we tell that story? I mean, I think it's a couple of things. One, especially in the last 20, 30 years, we've, we've become in, immensely worshipful of the founding fathers. There's an entire genre of, you know, Father's Day uh, timed books called Founders Chic, uh, some historians have called it, which which tries to reify the founders as these kind of incredible, you know, apotheosize them as these in- incredible godly like, you know, statesmen and um, and deities. Uh, and I think that's yet again, an example of overcompensating to hold us together, to give us this this shared, you know, founding story, even though it, it, the reality is quite the opposite. The other thing is that it's it's kind of a, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how people receive this aspect of the book, but it's kind of a Confederate history. <laughs> it's, it's a history that, you know, that Jefferson Davis, for instance, told in his memoirs, The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government. 
uh, he was he he devotes like a chapter or two in there to showing that the idea of secession was was present from the founding, and that lots of different people had proposed it over the years, including Northerners. So the, this idea that secession is indeed an American um, one of one of the the main American principles or impulses um, was a an idea that the Confederates found found useful and exculpatory in the decades after the Civil War. That doesn't make it not true. Yeah. And, and that is, I mean, do you feel like we just need like a kind of like therapy session as a country? Because it's like we have these two different narratives, union and secession. And how do we as a country, it, it, it's almost like when you when you are dealing as an adult with issues from your childhood or something, you, you, you've got to go mm-hmm. to therapy, right? Like, mm-hmm. How do we do therapy as a country? Well, we have a lot to work through. Um, you know, one idea, which I think is a very good one I support is a truth and reconciliation commission about slavery and its legacy. I think we're badly, badly in need of that. Um, and that's, that's part of the reparations conversation. Um, but more broadly, I, I, I wonder if a constitutional convention is the appropriate venue for that. Not necessarily to hammer out our differing, you know, ideas about American history and the founding, but, but what we think the country is and should be today and, and, and going forward. You know, I, I heard a proposal from a guy on Twitter, um, a legal analyst for Fox 5 in New York and Mike Sachs. Uh, I forget how it came up. Somebody was talking about a constitutional convention and he mentioned that he had, he had proposed to TV producers, uh, around the time I was starting the book, like 2014, 2015, a kind of mock constitutional convention as a TV program. They would go around the country and have these open forums where people could talk about the constitution and different amendments and what they would and wouldn't support, what compromises they were and weren't willing to make. Um, you know, I think that was a, a more peaceful time. I, I, I'm not sure we have the, uh, either the time or the the bandwidth right now to, to do that. I think we kind of need to get out of the massive, uh, you know, crisis that we're in right now with the pandemic and, you know, an aspiring authoritarian in the presidency. But um, should we some, you know, someday find some peaceful waters, I think it would be a good idea to, to take some kind of check-in like that um, uh, of, of the country and, and, and work through our, our different ideas about it. What would the mechanism look like? How would we do, we, we go to like a, I don't know. Would it be like just a conference, and we're all wearing uh, lanyards, and oh, I thought you were going to say Congress people. I thought you were going to say we're all wearing wigs. Well, you know, this guy, this guy, Mike Sachs's idea was was a, a TV program. You know, that where where uh, it comes to different cities. Obviously, once social distancing is lifted. And, um, I guess something like, uh, what do they call it? Like a town hall, like a town hall type forum where there's, there's perhaps some experts up there, political theorists, um, sociologists, maybe experts, you know, and we can ask them questions and we can, we can pose our own ideas, something like that. Maybe like a commission for presidential debates, but for, you know, a popular, um, constitutional forum. And that, you know, maybe that initially is non-binding, but maybe some ideas come out of that, that gain real currency. Like right now, I mean, the, the amendment to overturn Citizens United is wildly popular. Um, so maybe we just need something like this to, to, to get the ball rolling. Yeah, that's what's fascinating. I mean, you think about like the founding of the country and it was sociologically and politically kind of radical, right? We're just, we're kind of like, we're not part of you anymore. Like we're doing this thing. And, and it seems like we're incapable now of not only anything radical, but even anything functional. Like just like, Again, the number of issues like you're talking about Citizens United, background checks for handguns, all these like things that are kind of common sense, like that would unite us as a country. I mean, we're not even talking about like climate change legislation, which is harder, but even just basic things that you could get so many people to agree with. But why can't we just find mechanisms to get the basic sort of legislative change done? Yeah, well, like I said, I think there's constitutional obstacles to that, especially the the Senate, um, which prevents us from from having, you know, things that enjoy majority support passed into law. There's other anti-democratic provisions, you know, the, uh, the electoral college obviously is, 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 is horrible and, and sort of based on the Senate, um, Senate's model. I, another problem, you know, I, I should have mentioned this earlier about what would I do if I had the magic wand for a day? Um, I would massively increase the size of the house of representatives, which has been the same for over a century. Uh, when the constitution was, was written and ratified, each representative uh, stood for about 30,000 citizens um, or people. And and nowadays it's about 700,000. So that's that's the difference of how well each of us is represented, you know, setting aside, obviously, the expansion of suffrage um, since then. But each of us is represented about one thirtieth, you know, or less uh, what, what we were at the founding. So I'd radically expand the House of Representatives. And if the answer is, well, you can't have a Congress with 5,000 people in it, well, then the country's too big, 
you know. Yeah, no, you know, it's funny. Jonah Goldberg, who's a conservative kind of public intellectual, like he had a conservative economist on his show like last year. He made this very point. Like he was arguing, it's like one of his passions that yeah. if you had, if you expanded the house, he said, first off, you'd get to part time. You, you, you probably have more part time representatives and they would spend so much more time on constituent response stuff. Hmm. Yeah. And they, and they'd be probably Skyping into votes versus becoming creatures of Washington. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have, I mean, he thought that it would become a kind of that just that one move he think he thought would be a huge movement towards healthier democracy. That's you know, and there's a, there's a conservative saying that. So I feel like there are maybe some things that we can join together about. Another one is uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices. You know, why can't we get that done? Eighteen years, and you're and you're out, and you stagger it so that each presidential term has two vacancies to fill, no more, no less, and you completely take it out of this asinine conversation about you can uh you can't appoint a justice in the last year of a president's term oh now you can i mean it you know it's absolutely no way to run a country and i feel like there there is bipartisan support for 18-year term limits for supreme court justices so you do that you expand the house i would like to abolish the senate i don't know if you can get a conservative to agree with that and you get rid of the electoral college you're you know you're a pretty good way the way there i just don't know if we have time for that yeah, because I think that part of it, like, I, you know, there's a guy I've had on the podcast a few, time, Ed, a few times, Ed Watts, and he's an ancient historian, and he kind of charts um, the decline of the Roman Republic. And he said it was all norms. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, it, what held the Republic together in its good years were norms. And then somebody breaks a norm, and there's a wink and a nod, and somebody puts up with it, and then somebody else breaks a norm, and all of a sudden... So, I mean, is that part of the problem, too, like, w- that what you're talking about? We, we don't have norms anymore. Like we don't have like like Mitch McConnell just says you're not going to get to a point of justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 so is part of the need to like either break up or reform the thing radically is that we don't have enough norms. Well, I don't think it's that we don't have enough norms. It's that they're merely norms, you know, and they can easily be broken, and there's no punishment for that. That's what we're seeing. I've been getting extremely interested in Roman history, actually. So it's funny that you, that you went there. You know, I've I've been reading up about the the crossing of the Rubicon. You know, which was the major norm that you weren't supposed to break. You're not supposed to bring troops into Italy. They're there for the empire. Don't bring them, you know, across the Rubicon River into Italy. And when Julius Caesar did, that was the point of no return. That's why we call it crossing the Rubicon, you know? Um, and that's to me what Trump has done this year in using federal troops in the United States itself. I think that's and, and, and did it without, um, any consequences at all. Um, I think that's the crossing of the Rubicon and, and a moment of, of serious, uh, problem. And uh, for this country. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's so much uh, a lack of norms uh, so much as that we rely too much on norms. You know, after Watergate, I, I did um, I edited a, a book of the nation, the nation's writings on Watergate a couple of years ago, right before I started this project. Um, and what I found was that the the massive questions, the massive constitutional questions that Watergate had raised had never actually really been addressed. We just moved on. Ford was pardoned and then we moved on. You know, and then a couple of um, reforms were, were enacted regarding the use of, of spies in America and, and, you know, in the domestic sphere and stuff. But the question that Nixon had raised, he said, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. That was never addressed, you know. And then Trump came along. You know, I wasn't very surprised uh, and, and utterly, you know, walked right through that door. And, and that's where we live is, is, is through the looking glass on, on that particular question of when the president does it, that means it is not illegal, you know. He's, he, we can't charge him with anything. And to me, that's, that's, I'm going off on a tangent here, but that's the real problem. That's why he's not going to leave office peacefully in November, which is what all strong men do around the, the world is they fight hard to stay in power because they know that if they leave, they're going to probably be prosecuted. Um, and constitutionally, that is how it works. I mean, we would have to, if Trump walked, you know, he always said, I could shoot somebody in Times Square and people, my base would still vote for me. If he did that, we couldn't prosecute him. No. Like we'd have to get the Senate to impeach him. For, we'd have to have the House move for impeachment. We'd have to have the Senate convict and get him out of office before he could become prosecuted. Yeah, that's right. For for shooting, and it, it, even if we had it on film, and you know he could, he could, he he would and could uh, successfully concoct a story that would convince part of his base. You know, it's not that far fetched of an idea. He's being accosted by some, you know, presume assailants presumably of color or something like he could he could actually prove his point and i think he would probably get away they were bad people it was it, it was antifa, it was antifa. they exactly. were anarcha anarchists yeah the secret service was was disabled and i had to do it yeah you, i think a novelist of some of some skill could could write 
you know, <laughs> a story in which, um, in which he actually doesn't gets away with it. So you're a philosophy major. Who, which philosopher in the back of your head shaped this book the most? That's a great question. I would say Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Wow. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was reading a lot of him at the time. Um, and this actually didn't really get in the book, but I, I found something that he said in his journals in 1844 during the crisis over Texas annexation um, that just really stuck with me. And I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it. And he basically said that it would be a shame to dissolve this country. We were just beginning to feel our oats. Or he also said that that it would diminish every man's importance. Uh, to dissolve the union would diminish every American's personal importance. And it'd be a shame because we were just beginning to feel our oats as a country. And I, I was thinking about this idea of does the union make each of us more or less significant, you know, in our own minds and, and to the world? Um, does being part of this this project, um, you know, he was concerned about the individual, you know, uh, which is not necessarily, I think, the, the most important thing. Um, but does it make the individual more or less significant? I don't know. I found something else in, in James Madison's uh, writings from the 1790s after the Constitution was ratified when he was just beginning to tilt towards Jefferson and, you know, smaller government and stuff. And he, he says the opposite, essentially, that being part of this large country makes each of us less significant than we might otherwise be. I don't know. I, I think that's kind of one of the questions I was trying to get out uh, in the book. And then also, um, just on a more personal level, I was reading, uh, I've read about this actually in the acknowledgments, that uh, I was reading a Emerson essay experience, um, which is a very interesting uh, piece about how it's hard to talk about, but like our interactions with the world uh, never really get to our core the core of our soul. He's writing about even losing his, his, uh, his son. Um, and how that, even that, you know, he was able to get up, uh, out of bed in the morning that, that the external experiences never really, uh, touch us where we live. Anyway, it's, you know, deep stuff. <laughs> um, but, but he, uh, he had this line in there that said, heed thy private dream. And when I read that, um, I kind of realized that writing this book was my private dream. Um, and that's kind of the moment I decided to Go ahead with it. So in 50 years, let's say you're alive. Uh, hopefully. We're in COVID-19, so who knows? My, I, I, I tell my grandmother my ambition is to live to uh, 86 so that I can see the tricentennial. I was, born, yeah. I was born in 1990. I would really hate to have missed any of the centennials. Yeah, I mean, so when you're looking at America, what's, what do you want to see? In 50 years? Well, yeah. I, I mean, forget about 50 years. I, I, in the next five to 10 years, I want to see the Green New Deal. That's the country I want to see. You know, I want to see high-speed rail. I want to see the country physically knit together. I want to see people, you know, as I was talking about before, traveling more around the United States. I think we don't really do that. You know, most of the people I know in New York on the East Coast, they're not remotely interested in Iowa or Mississippi. You know, they don't, they don't care. They'd rather go to, you know, to Europe or, or Southeast Asia. I'd like to see more mobility around the country and I'd like to see a more um, ecologically friendly place. You know, um, 50 years is a really long way away, but I think that the, uh, we won't get to any kind of happy place, you know, to put it crudely in 50 years without taking these vital steps in the next five to 10 to uh, get climate change under control and rebuild our country. You know, and if we miss that opportunity, that's kind of why I wrote the book. Not that we're going to break up this winter, you know, but that if we miss that opportunity, I think in this decade, then I, I really think that our, our chances are not very good um, for holding together or, you know, the more important point, holding together for any kind of good or noble purpose, which is to me just as important as merely staying united. Well, I hope we stay united. Um, or if we don't, um, I hope we do it in a way that's promoting human flourishing. Thanks, Richard, for writing the book and and spending some time talking about it with me. It's um, It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.